What is your own destiny this morning? You know, over much of the last 200 years, uh, America has been guided by a kind of manifest destiny. So to quote John O'Sullivan, writing in 1839, he wrote, we are a nation of human progress, and who will? What can set limits to our onward march? The far-reaching, the boundless future will be the era of American greatness. Yes, we are the nation of progress, of individual freedom, of universal enfranchisement. You, you can't help but read that and hear sort of the unbridled optimism of John O'Sullivan's sort of notion of American exceptionalism. Or if you're familiar with the 80s New Ann Beige, Book 3, they put it, as you may know more colloquially, they said things are going great, only getting better, I'm doing all right, getting good grades, the future's so bright, gotta wear shades, there it is. Right, many of you will know that line more than you know John O'Sullivan. Well, friends, I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder if you're feeling so bright this morning that you've got to wear shades for your own life. You know, polls reveal that's actually not the opinion at the moment of most Americans. It's not their view. Soaring national debts, violence in schools, the kind of rancorous rhetoric that now defines Washington, stagnant real wages, declining birth rates, all cast from many a pale over sort of these vaunted hopes of O'Sullivan's. It's estimated actually that the millennial generation, so those born kind of 1981 to 1996, will be the first generation in more than a century to actually grow up less off, less well off than their parents. And friends, it's not merely the destiny of our nation. It's not merely sort of employment prospects. As Christians, I think it's natural for us to wonder about our own destiny as we just look about us Right, as Christian groups are increasingly barred from university campuses like Vanderbilt or Cal State or Yale or recently University of Iowa, just this week the state of California enacted legislation banning the sale of any book or any service by implication that expresses orthodox belief in biblical sexuality. Such things banned, a book or a service that would promote that, banned according to the state now of California. Even Senate hearings for uh, Mike Pompeo, who's put before our nation as the next Secretary of State, those took an unexpected turn this month when, when Senator Booker of New Jersey rejected Pompeo, not because he lacked the requisite qualifications and skills and experience as the sitting CIA director, but rather this senator rejected him for his Christian moral ethic. It's not supposed to be a religious test for office, but folks forget that these days. Happy to push it aside. And I think once again we witness how under the guise often of opposing discrimination, cultural change agents actually justify their own discrimination. But just more personally, maybe you feel that. You feel these pressures and tensions and clouds in your own classrooms, in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, your communities. You know, the sting of rejection and rebuke, a growing uncertainty of what your destiny, what your own future holds. And friend, if that's you, you're not alone. You're not alone this morning. For the past few weeks, even the Apostle Paul has given this sort of opening salvo to a dispirited cadre of Christians there in Ephesus because they too have been individuals who once knew some great degree of prosperity. 
They had once been upstanding members of their community, and yet, in becoming Christians, they had made themselves enemies of the state, public outcasts, embarrassing blights and threats to the kind of plurality and religious tolerance of the Roman Empire. In other words, following Christ had cost these Christians in Ephesus an awful lot. And by any outward measure, their own destiny, it appeared anything but certain, anything but promising. So what does Paul have to say to them this morning? What would he, by implication, have to say to us? Let me encourage you to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles put before you there in the, in the seat back, you can find it on page 976. Page 976. And as you turn there to Ephesians chapter 1, recall Paul opens in Ephesians 1-3 with this avalanche of blessing, reminding them that they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So elected by the Father, verses 4-6, to emancipated by the Son, verses 7-8, to and as we'll see this morning, sealed with the Spirit, so that in all things Christ would be preeminent, verses 9 and 10. So despite the dark clouds gathering upon the horizon, Paul wants to help them to see and wants, again, us to see that in Christ, their futures are bright, exceedingly bright. They may indeed need shades for their futures. That's the destiny God has for his people. So pick up Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, what do these verses have to say about your own destiny this morning? Lord, I want us, I want us to see uh, three things. I want to see three things from our text. And the first is this. The first is this. Your destiny is governed by God's plan. So thinking about your destiny this morning, first thing Paul wants you to see and understand is that your destiny is governed It's governed by God's plan, by his plan. Paul says, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. Now, we're going to think more in just a moment about what this inheritance is, but it's clear that it comes to us, verse 11, having been predestined, or as the CSB helpfully puts it, because we've been predestined. So Paul's giving us the reason why we have this inheritance, because we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to what? According to the counsel of his will. Paul's point is that God has a purpose. He has a plan. And his plan doesn't just include all the big stuff, like what's the fate of the universe? No, his his plan includes all things, verse 11. From the weather to financial markets, politics, personal relationships, God's plan extends over all things. That would be true in in individual decisions. We see this in the scriptures. Joseph says to his brothers when they sold him into slavery, Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. They intended something for evil. God had a purpose for good in it. That's also true not just of individual decisions, but of kings and of nations. So the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs like a water course wherever he pleases, Proverbs 21.1. We can go to the polls and we can, we can cast our votes, and yet Romans 13.1, what does it say? Well, it reminds us that there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's true even when your candidate doesn't win. In all of human history, the Bible says, guided by God, Acts 17, 26. From one man, he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them, the exact places where they should live. You see how he very concretely specifically is ruling in his plan over all things. History again. The Bible always says history is God's story. It's his story. Which means, friend, God is never caught flat-footed. He's never caught off guard. He's never blindsided by events. He's never scrambling to come up with an alternative plan. He's never left scratching his head. He's never at a loss for what to do. No, he is meticulously, and he is continually, and he is purposefully working out all things, verse 11, according to the counsel of his will. Oh, my Christian friend, with that in mind, I just wonder, how's your anxiety level this morning? How's your anxiety level? You know, I remember the first time I went sailing with my stepfather growing up in Santa Cruz, California. That was a common pastime. You all fish. We sailed, everyone got in boats, did stuff, little boats, big boats. First time I went out, it was great in the bay. Then we got outside the bay, the wind started to pick up, and that boat started to turn. It started to lean over 45 degrees, 60 degrees, even higher. And at that point, I was scrambling for the windward side, the high side, grabbing onto anything I could. I got a foot on a winch, I got my hand around some ropes, anything I could find. I looked terrified because I was terrified. And my stepfather just laughed and he said, Brad, what are you so worried about? I'm like, what are you worried about? I mean, look, like I'm staring right down at the water. We're about to go over. He's like, no, there's 8,000 pounds of lead at the keel. She won't blow over. She's just fine. Well, you know what? I couldn't see the keel. I didn't see any 8,000 pounds of lead. I just felt the wind blowing across, and I felt the ship pounding through the waves, and it looked like it was about to go over. Well, friend, what I want you to see is that keel upon that boat is like the certainty of God's purposes. Because we can feel like the winds of circumstances are about to capsize God's plans. And yet that keel always reminds us and ensures us that God's plans, they never finally fail. They won't tip over. No, they will be true and they will, they will stay and, and his plans will remain and be upright and come to pass. Friend, you all have the kind of confidence that God will accomplish his plans. In the face of all you do, do you know that he's truly in control? Because if you don't know that, the temptation is either going to be to drift off into despair or you're going to take matters into your own hands. You know, so the single Christian might start to troll in non-Christian waters for a date. They might see if they get any nibbles. You know, as if God can't intend their singleness for some good purpose, or as if they assume that, you know, having a spouse or what, a relationship, what have you, will make, them, will make them 
full and no longer discontent. It might be the couple struggling with infertility, and that same couple then begins to to pursue fertility treatments that they once would have thought morally unacceptable, as if God's not aware of their desires or he's not sovereign over the womb. Even the empty nester might begin to feel some degree of uselessness and despair as if their job's done, as if God's purpose somehow ceased as the children left the house or his retirement came. You know, what else are they to do? Well, the risk is that we believe that in some way God's plans, there aren't, they aren't as good as our plans, and so we insist upon our own way. Or we believe that God can't do something about our problems, and so we must do something. Or that maybe God's too busy, and so we take matters into our own hands. But friends, God's plans for his people are always better than their own. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Or right, even right now, as you're sitting there in that seat, you may be at rest, so to speak, but God is at work. He's at work even now ensuring that his good plans for your life will come to pass. See, God's not merely content with, you know, house odds, right, with winning more hands than he loses. No, he leaves nothing to chance, but he executes flawlessly the purpose of his own will in your life and in every corner of your life. You see, that plan, most broadly, is to have God's greatest concern, a people for himself. You know, so if election earlier on in verse 4, if that highlighted the sovereignty of God's salvation, his predestination, verse 5, and then what we have here again in verse 11, his predestination highlights the purpose of that salvation. So election highlighting sovereignty of God and salvation, predestination highlighting his purpose of that salvation, and that's the thrust of verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, that expression, obtained an inheritance, can be more literally translated, we have been chosen as God's own possession. That's what verse 11 is getting towards. We've been chosen as, as God's own possession. That image draws heavily from the Old Testament. It calls to mind texts like Deuteronomy 32.9 that Taft read for us earlier in the service. The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his own inheritance, Right, the point in verse 11 is not so much that we're given an inheritance, but rather that we become God's inheritance. We become his inheritance. So my Christian friend, if, if you're in Christ, God has purposed you for his own inheritance, which means you may feel this morning like life has just delivered one set of crushing blows after another. You may not have gotten the prom date. Right? The summer internship, the graduate program, or the house, or the career, or the family, or the health that you wanted. None of those things may have come to pass in your life. Your spouse may not love you as, they hoped, as you hoped they would. Your kids may not have turned out as you hoped they would. You may feel this morning like you are the star in just another sad country song. Right? Paul's saying God's chosen you. And he's chosen you to be his treasured possession. He has set his love upon you. He has looked upon you in Christ. And he said, no, this one, this one is mine. 
I will have this one for myself, my treasured possession. Which means right, the world may not value you. Your boss may not appreciate you. Your spouse may neglect you. Your friends may forget about you. All those things can come to pass, but not this God, not him. You didn't deserve it. He determined it to be so. He has called you for himself. He has made you his own, which means your worth and your value is found right here. Not in all those other things, but right here in these verses. And knowing that God has chosen you, if you are in Christ, to be his own possession. But a second thing I want us to see. Yeah, it's, it's governed by God's plans. Beautiful plans at that. But it's also guided. Your destiny is guided by God's word. Governed by his plans, yes. Secondly, guided by his word. Second thing I want to say, guided by God's word. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice how Paul talks about that word, that word they heard. It's the word of truth, right? It's a true word, and it's a good word. It's the gospel, right? the good news of your salvation. It's a word that brings hope. It's a word that brings reconciliation. You know, if you've come this morning and you're not a believer and you've heard Christians talk about the gospel and this good news, it's all that Paul's talking about here in verses 4 through 14, the, the blessings that come in Christ. What are these gospel blessings? Well, it's the good news of salvation that Paul preached to these Ephesians who were not believers, but became believers because they understood that this God who exists is a good God. He's a holy God. He's also a just God, which means because we have sinned and we have chosen our own way and not his way, there are consequences for that. And those are right and good consequences because any just God has to do something with sin and we want him to. But that means he has to do something about us as well. And yet not content to leave us in our sin, the same God sent Jesus Christ into this world. And he lived upon this earth, a real live human being, also the very son of God. And he lived perfectly. He lived righteously. He lived back as Adam and Eve were supposed to live in the garden, as we're supposed to live. He lived as we haven't lived. And yet he also willingly died on a cross as a substitute for sinners. He paid the debts that we have accrued in our own sin, Christ paid them. He bore them on the cross for us so that all those who would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus could be saved. And being raised from the grave three days later, right? that was proof to the whole world that this Jesus was the Son of God and that his death did accomplish God's purposes of salvation. That's what Paul preached. That's what these young Ephesian believers came to believe themselves. And this is what they need to be reminded of again, this word of truth, this gospel of their salvation, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And Christian, I want you to just remember again, how did this message come to them? It came through Paul preaching. How were they reminded of it? It came through his word, this word of truth. You know, what's your attitude this morning to God's word? What's your attitude toward it? Do you tend to come to the Bible and treat Bible reading a lot more like penance than you do pleasure? You know, there's no genuine love for God where there is not also a genuine love for God's word. 
You know, the mark of a genuine Christian is not that they disregard and dismiss this word, but rather they delight in it, they devour it, they also submit themselves to it. Psalm 119.6, I delight in your decrees, I will not neglect your word. The word of your mouth is more precious to me than thousand pieces of silver or gold. Psalm 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I rise before dawn and I put my hope in your word. Psalm 119, verse 147. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous word. Psalm 119, verse 62. I could just keep going. That's That's the Christian's outlook upon God's good word. And one of the wonderful things about Shirley Lassie's funeral, if you were here on Friday, was the ways in which this was a testimony to her own life, for her great trust and how she gave herself to this word. She understood God's word. They were words of comfort. They were words of wisdom. They were words of warning. Yes, they were words of correction too, but they were words of healing. They were words of wonder. They were words of life, and there are no other words like it. They are God's own words. We love God by loving this word and this gospel of truth, by recognizing that the word that made us, God himself, is the same one through that word in flesh, Jesus Christ, and in that word he's left us that will also sustain us. So, friend, if God seems distant... If his promises this morning ring hollow, if his care seems uncertain, if his purposes fleeting, is it possibly because you've been neglecting this word? Could it be that you've closed off your ear to his voice? Do you expect him this morning to comfort you and yet you take no time to commune with him? You know, to the youth in the room, if you're here, you're younger, you want to know God. You know, this word is not just for adults. It's not just for old people. It's for all of God's people. So if you want to honor the Lord, if you want to know him, if you want to know what his purposes are, if you want to stand firm in him and not be blown about at school, even at home, you need to hear these words. How can a young man or a young woman keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, God's word is not just for adults. Now, reading the Bible and knowing answers to the Bible, that doesn't make you a Christian, but it will point you to this Christ. It will point you to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and that word can be the deposit at which God can bring a tremendous inheritance and a wealth of blessing in your life. But non-Christian, if you've come, don't don't identify yourself with Christ, you've come and you're thinking, all this attention to the word is a little weird. That's you, I understand it. I was once a non-Christian. I didn't understand Christian's fascination with this word. But I just encourage you to take a copy that we have here in the seats before you, those red Bibles, right? Those are there for you to read while you're here. They're also there where if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home with you. I'd encourage you to read it. 
Right? Read it with a friend who maybe brought you to church. Begin with the Gospel of Mark. There's a little table of contents in the beginning. You can look. You can find the Gospel of Mark about four-fifths of the way through or so. Read there because a lot of people will define Christianity and then dismiss Christianity, but they've never even bothered to read about Christianity. Never reading it actually from the actual source. So I would just encourage you, if you've come as a non-Christian, you don't know the word, do the intellectually respectable thing and just pick it up. Read for yourself and then talk to another about it. Let God's word and let him see what he might have to say to you. Friends, our destiny is governed by God's plan. Yes, it is guided by his word, but thirdly, thirdly, it is guaranteed by God's presence. Third thing I want us to see, our destiny is guaranteed by God's presence. You know, in 2008, there was a movie that came out based on a true story. The movie was, I think it was named Defiance. It was after the story of three Jewish brothers during World War II, the sort of, I think the Belsky brothers they were called. And uh, they were those for whom, through great cunning and through great ingenuity and courage, they had saved hundreds of Jews from Nazi-occupied Belarus and had saved them and brought them out into the woods and sought to protect them and keep them. But if you know the story, that initial salvation of being rescued from the hands of, of the Nazis, it actually didn't finally secure their freedom. No, they had to endure these brutal winters outdoors. They had, they had to fight starvation and sickness. They were constantly on the run from German patrols there in the woods. Many survived the war, but many didn't survive. They were rescued, but only then lost. Verses 3 to 10, we've been considering, okay, what's God's rescue plan in Christ? And yet once redeemed, the question is begging us, how do we know that if we've been redeemed, we also won't finally be lost, that we won't be lost back to sin slavery? What confidence do we have? Does God give us that we can make it to the end? Well, that's what he picks up in verses 13 and 14 when he says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know, that image of a seal, it's similar to sort of the branding of, of cattle on a ranch. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, a seal, a seal was meant to be a mark of, of ownership, yes, and also protection. So it was used on livestock, again, to denote that possession, and it was meant to guard against theft. So guard against theft is also meant to guarantee the safety of that livestock. And Paul uses the same image to say that we as sort of as God's own sheep have been marked out by God, but not by just some outward seal. We don't brand one another, right? But by the inward seal of the promised Holy Spirit. He puts his spirit within his people to mark them as his own. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 puts it like this. Now it is God who makes us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership upon us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. All right, so with the seal of the spirit, the Christian is stamped with the very character of God. But the second image he uses is that of a, of a guarantee, verse 14, who is the guarantee, or as the footnote will say, or as the CSB says, is the down payment. Right, the spirit is the down payment. And that down payment, that's just an image. It's really a commercial term. Traders would use, it would signify that first installment, that, that deposit or pledge. 
right? It was money put up front in order to secure a claim upon some item in question. And in the modern Greek, actually, this word is used for an engagement ring. And it carries a similar idea. The ring that was, would be a pledge and a promise until that marriage would take place. But friend, here, this, this image of, of a guarantee of a deposit of our inheritance, the image is even stronger it would be as if the Spirit, and if in the Spirit, yeah, God's given us the engagement ring, but he's also secured our reception. Our reception, that wedding, he has secured that as well. God has also bought our home, and he's hired Chip and Joanna to fully furnish it for us. Right? That's what God has done. He's done all of that in this deposit. He sort of paid it all, not just a 10% down, but he has brought it all together. And his Spirit is that picture but not just a picture, it's the reality of his total commitment to us. And we know he won't abandon us because he's given that spirit for a purpose, verse 14, until the redemption of God's possession. Right? We're redeemed, verses 7 and 8, in that we have been saved, right? emancipated from our slavery to sin. But we're also waiting until the future redemption, until the final redemption of all things. And yet that phrase is, is stating almost more purpose. The Spirit is given for a purpose to ensure that we are finally and fully redeemed for God himself. Right? God wasn't going to leave his rescue plan up to chance. None of us would be saved, and like in the movie Defiance, only to be lost later. Everyone whom he saved, he would secure to the end. The Spirit is proof that God will have a people for himself, Jew and Gentile. So if you were reading really carefully this week, you may have noticed the, the pronouns change. He begins talking about how we've obtained an inheritance, verse 11, and then he shifts in verse 13 to you also. He seems to be speaking of first the Jews, who were the first to believe upon Christ, and then also the much larger group of Gentile Christians in Ephesus who have now also believed. And Paul's saying, all of those, Jew and Gentile, we are his. They will be mine, Deuteronomy 7, says the Lord God Almighty. And the day when I make up my treasure possession, my own possession, from among whom all the peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. So friend, what does that mean for you? I hope you take confidence. Right? Your future is secure. If you are truly in Christ, you will not, indeed, you cannot lose what God has secured for you. Now, if your salvation hinges upon your own decision, your own obedience, the strength of your own emotion, well, then you will lose it all. All of us will lose our salvation if that's the case. There's no guarantee it won't be lost. But this salvation, verses 4 to 14, is all about what? It's about God's work and about him sealing that work for those who believe, which means God, my friend, will no more abandon you this morning than he will abandon himself. And he doesn't do that. So our future is secure. But a text like this also puts our present into perspective. So we can lose the job, right? We can lose the girl, we can lose the friend, and yet we know that we actually haven't lost what's most precious. Now, I remember in college one time visiting New York City with a bunch of friends, and I got pickpocketed on the subway, which was such a bummer, because it was, I think, my first day there, and I pretty much had all of my hard-earned but very small amounts of college cash in my in my wallet, and I didn't have it anymore for the rest of the trip. And I was frustrated and I was angry. And maybe you can recall a time traveling, maybe in a city, maybe overseas, when you've been picked yourself. But what if you were pickpocketed 
on your way to collect the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. Do you think if you lost 200 bucks in your pocket, you would care if you're about to receive a cool 200 mil? My guess is you wouldn't care too much. 200 bucks, yeah, have at it. I hope you spend it well. I got a lot more coming, and it's a whole lot better. Well, friend, that's the attitude as Christians that a verse like this puts before us. Right? We wouldn't care because if we're in Christ, even our greatest losses in this life, all that we might suffer, that's like getting pickpocketed on the way to glory. It doesn't matter. Not finally. Now, it doesn't mean that our, our losses magically just disappear, but in a text like this, when we know what is in store for us, the inheritance that awaits, we see it as it truly is, and it puts our lives into perspective. So my Christian friend, if you doubt God's love this morning, if you doubt his love, you need to know that's what awaits you. If you doubt his love, you need to be reminded that he has stamped you with himself among all the peoples of the earth. That inheritance is for you because he has chosen you, right, through no merit of your own. And he said, again, you're mine. You're mine. Now, what does someone, what do they leave? What does one leave if they, uh, if I'm going to express a great affection for my wife, right, I might give them some, my wife some token of my love. You might give a spouse a token of your love, right? Maybe it's a pretty calligraphy card, and maybe it's you know, a flower, I don't know, maybe you get crazy and do a lock of hair, whatever you do. I confess, that was probably a long time ago if I ever did that, at any rate. But I just want you to see, this is not how God shows his love toward us. He doesn't just give us a pretty calligraphy card. He doesn't just give us a wilting flower. No, God instead gives us himself. It's the kind of commitment he makes to his people himself, which means we might be faithless, but this faithful God has forgiven our past, and he has also in Christ redeemed our present, and he has also in these very verses sealed our future, which means nothing will prevent him from safely delivering us into that promised land. He has given himself as the proof so that when our hearts doubt, they won't doubt his. Friends, this is the work of God's spirit in our lives. You know, it's not the work of the Spirit, it's, it's not a kind of higher life. It's not a kind of second blessing. It's not the gift of the Spirit so that we'll bark like dogs, as I've heard some Christians say, or erupt into holy laughter, as other Christians will say. The Holy Spirit is not some special trip. It's not a spirit-induced high for some Christians. If you've ever seen the Italian job in Seth Green, you know the scene at the bottom of the airport. Gotta get that spirit high. That's not how the Bible talks about the Spirit. No, God's given us his spirit to every Christian in order to what? To shine a light upon the gospel of Christ. To then secure our belief in that Christ. And then to seal us to this Christ for all eternity. That's the gift of the spirit in the life of the believer. To do that very work. And why has God done this? He's done it to the praise of his glory. Right? He has prepared for himself a faithful remnant. He has elected them. He has predestined them as heirs according to to his purpose, all verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then he's given us himself. He has secured our inheritance, that deposit, with the grand overarching purpose. Notice the same phrase, end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. We've seen this verse before, earlier in 
early in Ephesians 1, and sometimes we think all this to the praise of God's glory, like God's some celestial peacock. You know, he's up there, proud, puffed chest for all the world to admire. But friends, it's not a narcissistic obsession of God. It's because if God is this infinitely gracious and good God as he holds himself out to be, then of course he has to act for his own praise. Anything else than God acting for the praise of his own good glory, that would be wrong. It would be crooked. Right? If God is the supreme good, the only being for whom there is not a hint of evil or corruption or perversion or no self-interest, it would be contemptible for God to act on any motivation other than his own motivations. We've already seen in Ephesians, God acting solely on behalf of God is the only promise that he will always act for our good. The only promise. So friend, what's your destiny? Go back to that question. What's your destiny? Do you know what your destiny is? Do you have any confidence your destiny will end well? Because, listen, many put their hopes in this life. Many have been seduced by a kind of American exceptionalism, a kind of manifest destiny. And there are seasons where that may work out okay for you, but no season lasts forever. Right? Not in our nation. Nations rise and fall. Budgets fall. Health fails. In your own life, the promises of this life can recede. Right? Those spring cool rains, right? those can wither up in the, the summer heat, and that can happen in your own life. If circumstances are our only guide, then our destinies this morning are deeply uncertain. The Ephesian Christians, they knew that well. Maybe you know that well this morning which is why Paul takes our eyes off that which is fleeting. He fixes them upon what is sure. He says, in Christ, yet you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's not just an occasional subjective experience. That is the objective reality for every true Christian. Elected by the Father, emancipated by the Son, sealed and then paid for by the Spirit to the glory of the Son. That's the work that God is doing. And all of this rests not finally on our obedience, but on Jesus' obedience. Not the depth of our affections toward God, but of his affections toward us, sealed by the promise of the Spirit that he's left us. That's the hope held out to these Christians. All of those blessings in Christ. Outside of Christ, our best hopes are the fleeting pleasures of this world, and good luck with that. In Christ, these blessings secured by God for eternity. Oh, friend, what will be your destiny? Will it be this God? Let's pray. Oh, God, we pray, and we pray for thanking you for the goodness of this word for these last few weeks, we've been thinking about one long sentence in Greek from verses 3 to 14 of how you have begun and accomplished and completed every good work in Christ. And you have done that for us, but finally for the praise of your own glory. And so, God, we pray that you'd help us to, to marvel in that, to revel in that, to cherish that, and to know that however fleeting our faith may feel, if it is anchored in Christ. It is sure and steady, and you will see us through to the end. God, give us that hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.